Hello, everyone. Welcome to Nuvals Nuvals podcast. I'm Jillian Zhang. Today, we are very pleased to invite Dr. Kathleen Walker Mikol to have a brief conversation with us. Dr. Walker Mikol received her PhD from University College London. Her research interests focus on relationship between animals and humans, particularly in medicine and natural history. She published a number of books, including *Medieval Pets*, which is the first social and cultural study of companion animals in the late medieval period, and two charming gift books, *Medieval Cats* and *Medieval Dogs*. Her research has also included works on medieval toxicology and animal bites, 11th and 12th century pharmacology in the Antidotorium Magnum, lay medieval magic and cosmology, and most recently skin disease and animal skin on the Renaissance Skin Project at King's College London. Early this month, Dr. Wakamiko gives a fabulous keynote address entitled Rabies, Scabies, Beast and Man, Animals and Disease in the Medieval and Early Modern Period in CMRS Annual Symposium. Recently, she has started at the Science Museum Group in London as Research Grand Manager. With that, Dr. Wakamiko, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much, and thanks very much for inviting me to your podcast. When did you start getting interested in the whole idea of studying the medieval and the Renaissance period, and what brought your attention to animals? Well, I started off as an undergraduate, actually very interested in the ancient world. By the time I started postgraduate study, I thought I'll stay in late late antiquity, and then I found myself slowly getting drawn. Early Middle Ages, High Middle Ages, and then Late Middle Ages. I think why I love the medieval period is that it always defies stereotypes and common assumptions. And to me, that is wonderful that I'm working in a, a period in which people just have such very strong stereotypes of what it was like, and then discovering something new every day. And I also love. Uh, working in a field in which you really have to work hands-on with your sources, that you might be reading manuscripts that nobody has perhaps really studied in depth for hundreds of years. Uh, you're moving parchment pages, which are basically preserved animal skins, and looking at words written on them. So to me, that's part of the love for the Middle Ages. Animals, um, I started actually quite early on uh, when I was getting interested in the Middle Ages. Um, I started by seeing animals in bestiaries, uh, these wonderful medieval didactic religious texts in which moral tales are told through animals and they're often superbly illustrated. And there I began to think, well, animals are interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and, start, and, and started there. And from there, I've really never stopped. I've tried to go, uh, you know, when, in almost any other field I've looked at, whether it's medicine or science, there's always an animal angle, whether it's looking at animals that are diseased or looking at the diseases animals give us mm -hmm. or looking at pets. I see. I think you early research focused on the animal like as pets. Do you have a pet? 
or like what primary sources lead you to study the animals that were the companions to、uh, humans? This was my PhD on medieval pit keeping, and I didn't originally start looking at pits. I actually originally was looking at animals in medicine and magical texts, and my PhD supervisor,、uh, the wonderful Professor David Davre, asked me one day, I think on about the second week of, did they keep pits in the Middle Ages?、Uh-huh. And I looked at him and I said, I don't really know. And he said, Well, come back next week when you know the answer.、Oh. So. I came. I sort of went off to the British Library, which, fortunately, being University College London, is only about five minutes' walk away, and、mm-hmm. spent the next week、uh, and looking around, and all of a sudden, finding they were keeping tons of pits, and that nobody really had done much of work on this. And I was particularly interested in certain aspects of、uh, how animals are gendered. So, what are suitable animals for men, for women, for clerics, for people in different walks of life? And so I then went back to him and said, "Well, I'm changing my PhD topic. I'm now going to be doing pets." And、oh. it's through the entire PhD, almost the first question at any conference paper would be, "Do you have a pet?" Because I think people had this idea that I either had half a dozen dachshunds or was a crazy cat lady, and that could only <laughs> explain this mania. And I have to say that actually doing the PhD, I did not. Uh, at the moment, however,、um, I do have a rescue cat、uh, oh. called Tommy. But at the time, I didn't, and I often would be very firm and try to make a distinction that this is an academic study of pets. This is very serious,、yeah. and it's possibly because、um, animal studies is, I find, a lot more respected in the academy than、mm-hmm. it was、uh, several years ago.、Um, I remember when I started. It was seen as slightly flippant and not real history. When I, I would be at a conference and somebody would be saying, "Like I'm working on this particular aspect of literacy and nuns," and someone else would saying, "Well, I'm doing sort of Norwegian kingship," and I would say, "Well, I'm doing late medieval pets," and you could almost see the giggles among everyone of that's not serious history. And I'd be saying, "But it is to me. It's." An entire interesting aspect of social and cultural history.、Yeah. It's just as important as knowing what were people eating, what did people wear, how did they live their lives, and it's particularly I find animals ask very interesting、um, answer interesting questions because、mm-hmm. we've always had this very nebulous connection to them. What are we as humans? But another animal. So I always found in my work. For example, clerics and scholars writing Latin elegies about "I hope my little dog goes to heaven," and you think at the same time, well, theologically, this really shouldn't be working, but they are <laughs> cheerfully writing, and just so many sources. And partly, I think I was so free because I was working at that time in a field where I was practically just the one person. So、mm-hmm. I just looked at anything I could. I would go through it. All accounts and see if I could find references to feeding dogs or perhaps animal accessories like collars for cats or parrot cages.、Mm-hmm. I just and so a lot of it did involve, I'd say, a huge amount of work because the material usually would be poorly indexed or not indexed at all. So I would just go down rabbit holes and I would just assume things like let's go through all the tax records for Paris in the 13th century and see if we can find references. 
to pits, uh, people selling pits or making items for pits like cages and dog baskets. Mm-hmm. And it was actually in the end, it was very rich. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful story that like you realize not many people focus on medieval pets and you doing this groundbreaking research. You mentioned the British Library. It's not far away from UCL. So you uh, must benefit a lot from the, the resources collected there. And also notice that you have first two gift book, the medieval cat and medieval dogs that were used the manuscript from British Library. Is it because you went to there a lot so that you have this collaboration with them? Um, it was a case that the British Library is always fabulous mm-hmm. and was very useful. And during my, the PhD, I used a huge amount of rare book libraries and archives. So British Library, Bodleian, mm-hmm. Sybil, Oxford and Cambridge College libraries, material in France. Um, I also looked at a huge amount of material in Italy, particularly, I think, in a chapter I wrote about animals at court, which were involved a lot in archives in Mantua, but also looking at material in Venice. Actually, not long after my PhD, I was approached uh, by uh, British Library Publishing and they asked me, would you like to write some little books about uh, medieval dogs, medieval cats that highlight uh, the animals in our collection? For reference, they've been recently published under different titles. It's now Cats in Medieval Manuscripts and Dogs in Medieval Manuscripts because the previous titles are out of print. And there I was benefited that I knew really where to look. And Mm -hmm. so the little books, they have a selection of on each page of a medieval source about a dog or a cat and then an illustration just to give the disproportionate nature of medieval illuminations of cats versus dogs that the Uh volume on cats cats in medieval manuscripts has cats from both the British Library and the Bodleian Library in Oxford because I needed about 60 images meanwhile for the one on dogs in medieval manuscripts because dogs overtake cats by about 1 to 20 in medieval illuminations. That little book has purely got dogs from British Library because there were just so many. And also it was a case where I really chose which ones I wanted. Meanwhile, with cats, it was a case of if I can find a cat in this manuscript, it's going in. Okay, I see. I know you explore tons of manuscript and look at the images and the literature of uh, animals or medieval pets. Were there animals that were kept as pets in the medieval period, but would be hard to imagine having one as a pet in current time? That's a very good question. A hugely popular pet in the Middle Ages is the red squirrel. They used to keep these squirrels on little leashes. They often had little collars. Um, People would take the squirrels out for little walks or you would go walking with the squirrel on your shoulder. And it was just very popular. It appears in Illumination. I found references to squirrel collars in Mm -hmm. aristocratic and royal accounts. In literary sources, they talk and laugh about people spoiling their pet squirrels. Mm -hmm. It's an animal that now seems very unpopular, even though I did find a very close parallel in 18th century colonial America, when there was an entire fad for gray squirrels, which 
because you don't have red squirrels in America, for gray squirrels uh -huh. that were kept as pets. And I found a sort of nice selection of paintings, people keeping uh, animals as pets. And it's, I have to say that if I was doing the research nowadays, I probably could have even more access to imagery than I had then, because just in the past 15 years alone, the amount of digitized material that is now available is mm -hmm. huge. I mean, like, you know, I have an entire Twitter account, uh, medieval underscore badger for reference, which mainly concentrates on just animal imagery. And there's just so much now available online that just wasn't there. Mm -hmm. I think of other unusual pets is that there's a late 15th, early 16th century Italian artist, uh, Giovanni Bassi, known as Il Sodoma, who uh -huh. kept pet badgers. I was rather delighted when visiting a monastery in Tuscany, Monte Oliviata Maggiore, which he painted the frescoes of the life of St. Benedict in the cloisters. And there was a self-portrait of Giovanni Bassi with his pet badgers, and they have little red collars. Possibly, again, on unusual animals you wouldn't keep is uh, French King Charles VIII, who I found a record in his accounts to pet marmots. That's marmots like groundhogs. They had little jackets that were made out of velvet, that were made out of both red and tan um, little squares. And so his little marmots were wearing jackets. It's a, a one thing that the two actually aspects I always found very entertaining in my sources were references to the animals wearing very over-the-top accessories. So it would be things like squirrels with collars covered in pearls or mm. marmots with little velvet jackets. And the other one that always entertained me was references to pets that were too fat. Oh, <laughs> I see, I, because people like fed them. Yes, uh. <laughs> and, and actually it was a good thing to look for because you'd then find lots of criticism, particularly, for example, of preachers would complain about why do people just keep their pets so fat and not give the money to poor people? And it was actually a good thing to look for in sermons of uh -huh. preachers complaining about the fat pets. But yes, I was always very fond of fat pets and pets wearing lots of bling. Yeah, or very interesting stories. How could we know they were pet or they were just animal in the nature? And you mentioned like because sometimes they were too fat or sometimes they like wear collars or like a jacket. So in that way, they kind of like similar to human beings because we wear clothes, but usually the animal in the nature don't wear anything. So, right. Now, I found this, it was actually a very helpful thing when I was trying to define what did I call and what did I call a pet. I realized very early on, I could not just stick with an animal that you have a strong emotional connection to, because mm -hmm. if I did that, then I would have people often have strong emotional connections to horses or farm animals. And so and I didn't want to have the entire PhD filled with donkeys. So oh I specified that, that it had to be an animal mostly kept for companionship. Uh -huh. uh, and it had to be an animal that you often have indoors or in your mm. internal space. It's not kept really outside in kennels or it doesn't live outside. And I was also interested in things, for example, animals that you give names to or yeah. animals that you especially feed rather than just let them try to find their own food. But the two things I particularly looked for was um, companionship 
and being kept inside. And this, mm -hmm. of course, then led me to all these wonderful references of people complaining about dogs on the table, uh, sort of cats on chairs, mm -hmm. pets on beds. There was lots of references to pets on beds. And I was always delighted because to me, uh, that made it, it was a very clear distinction. It was a case that a pet is an artificial character a category of animal mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's a human construct so that to me that was very helpful when trying to identify what these animals were okay i see so yeah they were usually just like stay in the interiors i think later on you like switch your research directions to skin disease uh, and animal bites from pet so since when you switch the research direction um, part, uh, so partly when I finished uh, my PhD, I very kindly got a grant to be a fellow at the now non-extent uh, Wellcome Centre for the History of Medicine at mm -hmm. UCL for a year, working on medieval medicine and animals, uh, which was my <laughs> remit. Uh, so yes, mm -hmm. there was always animals, but I began to get very interested, for example, in animals, in pharmacological products, the use of on animal body parts, why often the, the, the kind of things that people laugh about in medieval medicine, such as, you know, putting sort of burnt hedgehogs on your head uh, to cure baldness, all those kind of recipes, I was all very interested in why certain animals, why would you use them? Where, where were they getting this material from? Mm -hmm. I then um, received a Wellcome Trust grant to work at the University of York on animal bites. And in many ways, I called this the um, almost the opposite of pets. That was when yeah. animals were nice. And then I was very interested in animals biting you. And, and to me, this was, again, one huge amounts of sources and just always is finding, which has always been my case. When I started with pets, people tell, used to tell me, you can't do a PhD on that. There's no sources. And I would say, no, I have too many sources. And similarly, with bites, I could write an entire book just on one species of snake biting people in the Middle Ages because there is so much material. Uh, so I got very interested in toxicology and rabies mm -hmm. and, and, and other aspects. And that's moved me on to ideas of animal diseases and animal skin. But even with the animal diseases, I'm very interested in zoonotic diseases, which is very actually apt in our current age of COVID-19. Yeah. Uh, so the idea of diseases that are shared between both humans and animals or ones in which there's transmission between animals and humans and vice versa. And mm -hmm. I started this when I was looking at rabies and then looking at sort of skin diseases in which you're sh sharing the same mites. And actually one of my, my latest project at this very moment is working with a team of ancient DNA specialists in oh. Switzerland. Uh -huh. And we're trying to basically identify leprosy and plague in rodents in the Middle Ages, and they are looking actually at bones of squirrels, bones at rats, to see what strain of disease these animals had. Mm -hmm. And I joined the project because they emailed me and they said, we're looking for somebody who knows something about medieval squirrels. Would this be you? And I did feel like saying, well, it's probably just me. <laughs> and this has started actually an entire fascinating uh, avenue of work 
in which I'm now looking at that not only are that everybody, they're all keeping squirrels as pets, but mm-hmm. it's the number one fur in the late Middle Ages. Every, all your clothes are completely lined for the aristocracy are completely lined with squirrel fur. They're using hundreds of thousands of squirrel bellies to line all these clothes. Mm-hmm. And it's very much connected because it's believed that leprosy in the Middle Ages is a zoonotic disease going between uh, squirrels and humans. And that's oh. the squirrel connection. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, um, I have to say, I don't think I'll ever leave animals because <laughs> me, there's just so many avenues and it's just such a rich vein to go. I don't think anyone can ever feel like you know, they're doing it all or there isn't things. There's things, aspects I choose that I think are fun, but I just keep seeing them everywhere. When I read your paper or your book, I realized your footnotes are so many. That surprised me because you provide us so many resources, but we just didn't pay enough attention to As you mentioned that you are uh, doing toxicology in the medieval period, and I think it's related to the science history and natural history. It's definitely an interdisciplinary project, a bridge humanity and the science. So during this um, process, what's the most difficult thing for your research? I wouldn't say it's difficult, but I would say a challenge is is that from the very start, um, you had to be very, very interdisciplinary. Mm. So right from the start, I was reading um, zooarchaeological reports. I was getting quite obsessive. I would go and look through any report on animals dug up in the Middle Ages to see what type of animals could these be? You'd be looking at literary sources, and even this, looking at everything from letters to poetry, uh, Mm. historical sources, you're going through everything from sermons to chronicles. It's a challenge, I enjoy it, but (laughs) I would say it's just a huge amount of material. And even, for example, medical material, for example, you mentioned sort of toxicology. So I'd be looking, for example, for snake bite, and you'd find this in surgical texts, you'd then go and find this perhaps in texts on medieval pharmacy in different genres. And so you had to be very adaptable. And this does mean having to then read a lot of secondary literature and try to keep up with it on finding so much material. And yes, I I do like footnotes. I have to say that for the medieval (sighs) pet book, I must thank my editor at Boydell and Brewer, Caroline Palmer, for making me make those end notes much smaller. I have to confess, I am one of those academics that enjoy a nice long footnote. And she very, and she very wisely steered me into making them a little bit more concise and so that they were not, you know, taking up half a page per footnote. Recently, I've got a article coming out on a Arabic text that was translated in the 11th, 12th century Mm-hmm. On animal, and it's all about using the body parts of animals for medicine and magic. And to me, it's just a perfect example of this field is just so rich. I invite almost all colleagues of put a paw, so to mm-hmm. speak, into the world of animals because it's a prism into the world, and there's just so much uh, sources mm-hmm. and materials and different things you can say. Yeah, I think 
based on your research, I can see there are just so many directions and so many potentials to study the human animals relationships. I still have another question because I'm studying art history and visual culture. So I'm I noticed that you always pay attention to the iconography of animals in your research. I'm very curious about uh, whether um, there is uh, examples that uh, the image contrasts with the literary descriptions in the textual material. Um, not a case of contrast, but it was often a case that actually it's strengthened. Mm-hmm. So for example, I might find in sermon literature preachers complaining about fat dogs. Mm-hmm. And then I would see in books of hours for female owners in which they are accompanied by very clearly rotund little fat dogs. And these mm-hmm. are actually drawn in quite a noted fashion, different from sort of sleek hunting hounds. They're very clearly fat lap dogs. Mm-hmm. Or else getting back to squirrels. I first actually saw that in a Hans Holbein portrait uh, of a lady holding a sort of, there's a starling in the background and she's holding a squirrel with a little chain and a collar. Mm-hmm. And at the time I thought, well, that's unusual, but did they actually have them with collars and squirrels or is it just a sort of little sort of artistic uh, <laughs> affectation? And I was delighted to see accounts going through poetry references to no it isn't they are putting little collars on their squirrels so I think iconography can really strengthen what you're saying what you're finding sometimes when I see a lot of animals particularly in medieval and renaissance iconography I I am quite obsessive about it like I will go to an art gallery and it will be a case of there's a dog there's a Mm -hmm. there's a dog there's the cat there's a parrot uh if you're next to me as I go through any collection that pre-1800 you are warned uh that's me throughout but I'd I've always thought that so often the imagery of animals gets reduced to pure symbolism so that people will say, oh, it's a dog, symbol of fidelity, that's why they're carrying it, that's a cat, it's evil, that's why it's there. Because these were animals that I'd done a lot of work of seeing that they're very ordinary pets, Mm -hmm. that sometimes their inclusion there is actually quite basic, they're there because they're kept as pets. It's normal. You'd expect to see them so at the foot of an aristocratic lady. Mm-hmm. Yes, you would expect to see a dog as you expect to see her in beautiful clothes. She has a dog. That's almost automatic accessory. Similar, for example, in religious paintings, uh, paintings of the Last Supper in the Renaissance. And it's very common in the middle of the Last Supper, there'll be a dog and a cat fighting or there'll be a dog and a cat eating table scraps. <sighs> And sometimes I found that this would be sort of overly interpreted. Is the cat Judas? What does the dog represent? Rather than I think it's just a symbol. It's more like a symbol of domesticity. Dogs and cats are at dinner. So having a dog and a cat at a place next to table and chairs and food is not really iconographically that strange. They would be seen Mm. as something completely normal when you are eating. I totally agree. Yeah, sometimes they probably don't have specific symbolic meaning. Yeah, they could be just a very common theme there. Well, well, also for the symbolism to work, 
-hmm. it means it still means that the animal has to still signify something so for example when you see a hound at the foot of a knight it can yes mean that dogs actually had very positive virtues of fidelity and faithfulness Mm -hmm. but it also works on the fact that uh, he is a knight and they are very so and there's a strong connection of medieval hunting culture and having mm-hmm. a hound is not unusual so it can work both ways I don't think it's an either or mm-hmm. uh, case by the way I do recommend this to anybody if you are looking at any medieval or renaissance art do look out for the animals because once you start looking you just can't stop you start thinking oh my goodness are that is this the age of animals because you're just you'll be seeing a courtly scene and then at the corner there will be a monkey giving mm. a hit onto the head of a dog and you're saying come on <laughs> yeah yeah um okay yeah thank you for sharing your experience with us i don't want to take too much of your time i know you are really busy so maybe we just stop here okay Thank you very much for spending the time with us. And I wish you a relaxing holiday because the holiday is approaching. (laughs) Thank you very much. I will probably be spending um, a lot of the time working on some articles that are due and some chapters that I have to finish, um, as as, as most scholars sadly do if they've got any spare time. But thank you so much for inviting me. And it was delightful to talk. And I hope encourage listeners to start flicking through the pages and looking for animals. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you.